This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Decode DC, Democracy Now!, Humorless Queers, The Young Turks, Activism from the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and a TED Talk by Rodrigo Bijou. Last April, Barbara Mills was asleep in her home in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, when her phone rang. I was in my pajamas, and, and I was a little out of it, and I, I looked at the phone, and her number showed up. I said, why is this girl calling me? The call was from her daughter Brittany's cell phone. I want to say it was 1210 that 12, I got the phone call. Midnight? Mm-hmm. Did you pick up? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And how did that conversation go? It was uh, one of the police officers who Calling asked from the me, phone? Yeah. Asked me my name, and then he told me that I needed to come over to uh, Brittany's apartment, that there had been an accident. He didn't tell me exactly what happened, and I told him I was on my way. Now, according to police, Brittany, who was a single mom and eight months pregnant with her second child at the time, opened her apartment door late at night and was murdered. Now, the police think she knew the killer, and they say what they believe happened is that she refused to let the person borrow her car and just a little while later was shot. Brittany died, and her unborn but nearly full-term baby boy remained on life support for a week before dying himself. And everyone here, everyone, her mom, the police, they all say that the critical evidence that they need to solve the case, to figure out who actually murdered Brittany, that evidence is locked inside of her cell phone. She did say that she had a diary in her phone and that everything negative that happened to her was in that diary. And you can't get access to that? No, they won't. They, mm -mm, I have no rights. Police can't get access to that? Police can't get into it. I thought somebody lost their mind. I thought it was crazy. I said, what do you mean they can't get in the phones? If that phone can help solve this case, then I think law enforcement and law enforcement alone should be able to go in those phones and access whatever it is they need to access. You have two murders here, not one, but two. And a child who didn't even get a chance to take a breath on his own. And so now, Barbara Mills is smack in the middle of one of the most heated debates taking place not just in the U.S., but around the world. Because until her daughter's death, Barbara Mills had never thought much about Edward Snowden, the NSA, or encryption. And yet all of that, all of it, has landed right in her lap and tormented her ever since. On the other side, Nate Cardozo. He's a lawyer with the Electronic Frontier Foundation. It's a Silicon Valley-based group that has become really the champions for privacy rights and civil liberties. And right now, they're the ones on the winning side of this debate on encryption. Cardozo walked us through what his personal security checklist is. I have a very strong passcode enabled on my phone. I have full disk encryption turned on, which is, you know, Apple turns it on by default. 
uh, and, and security is one of the things I care most about. This issue of unbreakable encryption and secure communications, well, you know what? It's not, to him, just about preventing somebody from snooping. He says strong encryption actually saves lives. If I'm a Red Cross worker in Syria, I want to make absolutely certain that the Assad regime is not intercepting my text messages. If I'm an LGBT youth in Saudi Arabia, I sure as heck want Saudi Arabia not to be intercepting my text messages. Look, encryption saves lives right now. Um, and that's the other side of it. If Apple did what law enforcement wanted and installed the backdoor that director of the FBI, James Comey, is asking for, people would die. And that's something that we don't hear enough on the other side. You know, he says this isn't just about democracy in the U.S. It's also about what's happening all around the world. During the Arab Spring, the government of Bahrain, which is one of the smaller Gulf countries, installed what amounted to a complete surveillance system on every cell phone in the entire country. And they crushed the democracy activists who were organizing, and hundreds died. If those activists had been using iMessage, the government would not have been able to read their text messages. That simple. But of course, this debate is nowhere near that simple, especially when you think about the still unsolved murder of Brittany Mills. What happens in this case is um, she had a cell phone that was found at the murder scene, uh, and they can't get into the phone. Miss Mills's mom is joining sort of the local law enforcement community in Louisiana and saying, this doesn't make sense. We want to solve this murder. We want to catch the murderer. What do you say to something like that? You know, sometimes there are cases where, yeah, it would be great if the technology existed. Uh, and computer scientists have told us that it's simply not possible to build a system that could allow law enforcement into Miss Mills' phone and keep all the bad guys out. And look, there are almost always other ways of getting the same information that would be stored on the phone. So, yeah, it sucks that one specific avenue of investigation is closed because of this. But there are other avenues that are still open. We turn now to the ongoing dispute over privacy and encryption between the FBI and the computer giant, Apple. In an interview last night on ABC, Apple CEO Tim Cook explained why his company is resisting a court order to help unlock the iPhone of one of San Bernardino attackers. In December, Sayed Farouk... Uh, Sayed Rizwan Farouk and his wife killed 14 people and injured 22 others. The two attackers were killed in a shootout with police. Cook said what the U.S. government was asking Apple to do was the, quote, software equivalent of cancer. This case is not about my phone. This case is about the future. What, what is at stake here is can the government compel Apple to write software that we believe would make hundreds of millions of customers vulnerable around the world, including the U.S. The only way we know 
would be to write a piece of software that we view as sort of the software equivalent of cancer. We think it's bad news to write. We would never write it. We have never written it. And that is what is at stake here. The FBI says Apple's overstating the security risk to its devices and argues the litigation's limited. In an open letter earlier this week, FBI Director James Comey wrote, quote, the particular legal issue is actually quite narrow. We don't want to break anyone's encryption or set a master key loose on the land, he said. Apple phone systems have a function that automatically erases the access key and renders the phone permanently inaccessible after 10 failed attempts. To talk more about the case, we're joined by Barry Eisler, who has written about government surveillance in fictional form, but he's also a former CIA agent. Eisler is the author of a number of books, most recently, The God's Eye View. It's great to have you with us. Thank you, Amy. So let's talk about um, what the government is doing and the pushback of uh, Apple. Yeah, um, I like Tim Tim Cook's metaphor. It's nice to see someone hitting back linguistically this way. You would expect the FBI to say what it's saying. It's only about one phone. This is the kind of thing the government always says. And uh, I'm reminded of the time the CIA acknowledged that it had made two torture tapes. Fifteen months later, it acknowledged that it was, in fact, 92. In this case, the government said this is only going to be about one phone. And it took them only a day to say, did we say one phone? Actually, we're talking about 12. If you talk to any encryption or security expert anywhere, they'll all tell you that what the FBI is asking for is impossible. You can't create a backdoor for one phone without making all phones vulnerable. So that's one important issue here. But there's another one that I think is not adequately understood. There's Julian Sanchez, a guy I follow pretty closely because he knows a lot about these things, works with the Cato Institute put it, this isn't just about encryption, it's about conscription. And I I wish people would understand this a little bit better. It's unprecedented for the government to be telling a private company what products it can create, what features it has to include in those products. As Tim Cook pointed out, where does this stop? What if the government said we want to have a feature on the iPhone that enables the FBI to turn on the iPhone camera, to turn on the iPhone microphone anytime we want? Would that also be okay? So uh, I hope this isn't going to happen. It's, uh, it's sort of odd to have to be championing the world's richest corporation in its fight with the government. I mean, they're asking the, the Apple to write a program which would then create a backdoor. Exactly. And it won't be unique to this one phone. It would be something that the government could use against any phone. And even if you think that the U.S. government, it's okay for the government to be able to break the encryption of anybody's phone, even if you trust the U.S. government and think the U.S. government has never lied to anyone, never abused its powers, even if you believe anything like that, what backdoor is accessible to the U.S. government would also be accessible to whatever is the American enemy du jour. It could be the Chinese government, uh, Russia, Iran, and of course, not just to state actors, but also to criminal groups and hackers. A vulnerability in a phone is not accessible to just one actor. But it he killed 14 people, he and his wife, and yeah. they just want access to see if there's other plans. I mean, wh- who knows what would yeah. be. So this is another thing the government is typically good at. It tries to find the most attractive fact pattern it can to use as the thin edge of a wedge that it can uh, that it can then use in other um, less obvious fact patterns and I see this again and again um, people don't remember that well now but Jose Padilla I'm sure you guys remember the so-called dirty bomber 
I mean, Jose Padilla was accused of trying to create a, a radiological bomb and detonated in uh, in Chicago, and a whole lot of people were going to die. And so to keep us safe from that kind of thing, the government arrested him, held him on a Navy ship, offshored him. No due process, no charges, no trial, no access to a lawyer. It was unprecedented. But they were careful to choose what from them, for them was an attractive fact pattern before doing something so unprecedented. They picked a scary-looking guy and accused him of doing scary things. And people didn't protest the way they would have if uh, if they had chosen someone a little bit different. So it's the same thing here. They're not doing this um, in the name of, I don't know, preventing someone from shoplifting or something like that. They've chosen an, a very attractive fact pattern so that they can say the talking points that you were just parroting, which is like, come on, this is just to keep us safe from the really scary people who want to kill us all in our beds and who in- indeed did kill a lot of people in San Bernardino. So to what extent do you think that accounts for public opinion? Because a recent Pew Center poll found that 51% of Americans think Apple should comply uh, uh, with the FBI and unlock the iPhone of uh, one of the perpetrators uh, of the attacks, and only 38% that said that uh, 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 the FBI should not, and the rest had no opinion. Yeah, which is not actually, which is not a bad response to anyone who thinks that Apple is doing this as some sort of publicity stunt. I mean, for the moment, anyway, more people think that Apple should comply than think that it shouldn't. I think the fact that so many people, actually that 38%, think it's a really bad idea for Apple to be forced to do this is in part a tribute to the educational value of the Snowden revelations and all the journalism that's been built on them. Because I'm pretty sure, can't really conduct this experiment, but I'm pretty sure that if it hadn't been for Snowden's revelations, the public would be focusing entirely on the keep us safe from the terrorists aspect of this whole thing and not on the, but this is going to destroy privacy. I mean, interestingly, Apple has made the iCloud available. It's not like they haven't done that. I mean, there have been many requests of uh, these different phone uh, manufacturers to get access to the iCloud. And, I mean, the government can't just get access to it. They have to get permission. So they're making a distinction between the actual physical phone. Apparently, they turned off the iCloud at some point. So it's what's remained on that phone since the point they turned it off. Right. So the idea here is that some of your data sh- is not accessible even by the company that created the product. It's, it's on your local device and no one else should have access to it but you. Um, Apple has in fact complied with the government. Uh, in the government's request to, to turn over data to which it has access. Maybe people might like that, they might not like it. My own feeling is, look, as long as it's pursuant to a warrant and it's not secret and it's out in the open, I can live with it. But the notion that now Apple is going to crack encryption that its users have come to rely on to keep their data private is, uh, is an entirely new thing. Today's episode is sponsored by Casper, the company who makes an obsessively engineered American-made mattress at a shockingly fair price. They've broken into the industry by designing an excellent memory and latex foam mattress that provides resilience and long-lasting supportive comfort, but can be shipped conveniently right to your door, bypassing all of the showroom markups. Casper mattresses cost a fraction of the industry standard, starting at just $500 for a twin-size mattress and going up to only $950 
50 for a king-sized. I've been sleeping on mine for over a year now, and I still don't have any complaints. But if you try it and you don't like yours for any reason, they'll take it back. They have free returns within a 100-day period. So you get more like a three-whole-month trial instead of three whole minutes shopping the old way. As a special offer, you can get $50 towards any mattress purchase from Casper and support this show by visiting casper.com slash best and then using the code best at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. You can also find that URL linked up on my website. But again, it's casper.com slash best and using the code best at checkout. When people see the headlines about this, I feel like there's a lot of misleading stuff. But just if you don't know anything about this and you're looking at the news, you see this as the FBI has told Apple to help them get into the San Bernardino terrorist phone. And why is Apple being such a jerk and not helping them? Um, So I guess my first question is, is this really about the, the attacker's phone? And is it actually even about phones at all, or is it about something else? So that's a great question. So the the question about whether it's actually about this phone, people need to understand the facts of this case. Here are some of the facts of this case. This guy, Saeed Farouk, he was an employee of the local county government, and they gave him a cell phone, an iPhone, um, as part of his employment. So this is the iPhone in question. This is the iPhone that the FBI says it needs to get access to. On the other hand, he had... His work phone, it's not his personal phone. Right, his work phone, that's right. On the other hand, he had at least two personal cell phones. After the attacks, he destroyed physically both of those cell phones. He did not destroy the government phone that he had through his job. Now, I, I think this is a really important part of this case for people to think about. People especially who are really concerned that what the FBI says is true, that there may be information on this phone that could tip investigators off to some larger terror cell or, you know, some other threats. If you were a terrorist who intended to kill people, would you use your work phone that you know is subject to consent monitoring? You know, everybody who gets a phone through work is knows that their employer can read it at and look at everything they do on their phone. You don't pay the bill, you know, the government, your employer, in this case, the government pays the bill, they see who you call, etc., would it be foyable too? Emails if he was a government employee? Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure they would be. Um, but anyway, would you use that phone or would you use your two personal phones to conduct your terrorist business? And then finally, which phones would you destroy? The phones that had maybe some evidence on them or the phone that didn't? Well, he destroyed his personal phones. He did not destroy this government phone. And yet the government is now trying to make people believe that there's something so critical on this phone. Um, that they need to do some really dangerous things in the court to set dangerous precedent to get access to that information. So just at the very basic level, it's very difficult to believe that there's anything of value on this phone. Another reason to believe that there's very diff- it's very difficult to believe that there's any anything valuable intelligence-wise on this particular phone is because our phones don't actually contain that much information that would be useful to investigators in a criminal investigation. What does his phone have that his phone company or Microsoft or Google or whoever service providers um, would have about him? Those companies, which have all, you know, fully complied with this investigation, as has Apple, by the way. Apple did possess some iCloud backups because, again, people need to realize that when they store something in the, quote, cloud, it simply means 
they're storing something on someone else's computer. In this case, Apple runs massive servers, and they give people space on those servers. So I think you get five gigabytes for free when you have an Apple account. So he probably had a, an, I, an iPhone backup or two stored in the cloud. Again, on Apple servers, Apple gave that information to the government when it was served with warrants in this case. So did Verizon, which ran, which was the company that maintained the self-service to this phone. Therefore, uh, the government had access to information about who he communicated with and when, and even his location information through this phone, because Verizon, as the carrier, keeps track of where he went with that phone, and I'm sure disclosed all of that information to the government. So it's very difficult to believe that he would be able to communicate with people in such a manner on this phone that the government would not be able to identify after the fact simply by going to the service provider. So for that reason, and because it was his government phone that he left sitting pristine, meanwhile he smashed his two personal phones, it is very difficult to believe that there's actually anything of value on this phone. But again, it seems pretty unlikely that he would smash two of his phones, leave one of them unbroken, and do a bunch of stuff that his company could, not company, that the government that he worked for could monitor. Like, it just seems like he would have been pretty dumb to put anything on his work phone. So it sounds like, at least to me in my layman's point of view, that there's probably nothing on this phone. Is that a fair guess? I think that's probably right. And in fact, Jim Comey has acknowledged at least that they, the government has no idea whether there's anything on the phone. Um, he said publicly there may be, there may not be. In the government's brief itself, um, it says there may be information on this phone. They, they say may and might all the time. They actually don't know what's on the phone. Um, and as Marcy Wheeler points out, he waited two months after the shootings to try to get this information. So... That also undercuts the government's um, hysterical pleading argument that, oh, God, we couldn't look the survivors in the eye if we didn't have this information, right? Uh, if we didn't do our best to get this information. Well, you waited two months, so it clearly wasn't that important. You know, if yeah. you really thought that this guy had some terrorist cell that he was a part of that you could only unravel if you could, un- you know, force decrypt this phone, then you're doing a pretty good shitty job investigating this because it took you two months to, to act on it. Well, so, so it sounds like it probably maybe isn't about this phone necessarily. Is it about phones in general, though? Like, are they trying to make sure that they can do this to any phone going forward? Is that what they, this is? It is about phones, but it's not just about phones. Mm. So also instructive is to look up a Washington Post story that Edward Snowden tweeted yesterday, actually, um, but I've, I had read before that includes a statement from Robert Litt, who's the intelligence community's head lawyer. And he basically said, well, the encryption debate, it's, it's not going our way in Congress. Um, you know, we've been complaining about going dark and asking Congress to authorize these so-called backdoors into encrypted systems like Apple's iPhone, and Congress won't do it. So, you know, I think this is the kind of thing where we might have to wait for a terrorist attack, and then we'll be able to go in and get the power that we want. So I think that in this case, the government realized maybe a little late, a couple months (laughs) late, that, wow, this is actually a pretty good case. Here we have an iPhone that um, we can't get inside of. You know, doesn't matter if there's anything valuable on it. Propaganda-wise, in terms of making the argument to Americans about why it's so important that we defeat encryption, this is a pretty damn good case. And in the legal tradition, there's a saying, bad facts make bad law. Well, these are some pretty bad facts, right? This guy massacred you know, 15 people, 14 people um, in broad daylight in like a community center in in Southern California. This is pretty scary to a lot of people. So I think a lot of people who don't really understand what this 
precedent would do, what, what this legal ruling, the precedent it would set if it succeeds, if the FBI succeeds here, the government's case is pretty slam dunk in terms of, you know, propaganda. So we sat and talked, then we walked and talked, thought it was the truth, what is a secret? Drag it on and on, even favorite sounds, but your division's wrong, what is your Politicians on both sides of the political spectrum are fighting hard to increase surveillance in the United States after the recent terror attacks in Paris and also the mass shooting in San Bernardino, California. Now, that includes Hillary Clinton and politicians like Jeb Bush. Of course, Donald Trump is calling for more surveillance, but Donald Trump rarely knows what he's talking about. Let me give you more details on that. Um, now, Hillary Clinton recently gave a speech about this, and she said, we're, gonna, we're going to need help from Facebook and from YouTube and from Twitter. We cannot permit the recruitment and the actual direction of attacks or the celebration of violence by this sophisticated Internet user. So she's specifically talking about Islamic militants there, people who are using social media in order to either radicalize or recruit people. She continues to say, they're going to have to help us take down these announcements and these appeals as quickly as they get up. Now, I think she touches on something interesting there, because social media has been used successfully by Islamic extremists in order to recruit people, and it does seem as though some of these accounts and profiles come down very slowly. So there are other things at play here that no one really considered, at least I didn't consider, and it's the public's perception of these social media sites and whether or not they're doing too much to work with politicians, right? They're worried about their image. Mm -hmm. Now, Donald Trump said the following. We have to start looking at families now. I think his mother knew that he was what was going on. She went into the apartment. Uh, anybody who went into that house or that apartment knew what was going on. Now, he's speaking about the shooter in San Bernardino, California, and he's saying, we need to investigate every single family member because they obviously knew what was going on. So he wants more surveillance in that regard. Yeah, first of all, we have no idea if the mom knew. The authorities <laughs> are figuring that out. If they f figure out that she knew, that's a serious problem, right? Yeah. Apparently, another guy helped him buy the weapons. Serious problem. We should look into that. But Trump, as usual, running off at the mouth with no information. Uh, highly ironic, because he's saying, we need better intelligence. Now, let me tell you something without any intelligence. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, now, overall, uh, all these people, whether it's Hillary Clinton or, or even more so the Republicans, like Marco Rubio. Donald yeah, Trump. Marco Rubio wants to expand the NSA's program that, you know, um, Edward Snowden had leaked about back in 2012. Now, we haven't ended the metadata collection, right? right? Uh, so all these guys are saying, yeah, it, it, it didn't work, but I want to do more of it, <laughs> right? And But when you think about, like, wait, if we're going to surveil the families and we're going to surveil people that we have no intelligence on, that means we're surveilling people randomly. Now, if we're doing that, we don't have a warrant, we don't have probable cause, it's deeply un-American, and probably deeply ineffective. It is deeply ineffective. Okay, so the NSA's program 
just indiscriminately collected metadata on everyone in the United States. Didn't matter who you were, didn't matter if you were the most innocent, hardworking, productive member of society. They were collecting your emails, they were collecting your phone calls. They say they were just collecting metadata, but through that metadata they can paint a very clear picture of your day-to-day -day life, right? So there are lots of problems there. Why should Americans give up uh, their constitutional rights in an effort to catch terrorists. Now, if it was successful, then maybe we're having an argument, but it's not successful. I mean, Dianne Feinstein, I always go back to this because this is the thing that I always find amazing. Dianne Feinstein, the same senator who was very much in favor of NSA, the NSA's program, was the same person who said right after the leak, oh, we're more unsafe than ever. Well, why are we so unsafe if you're collecting all this information indiscriminately of every American in the United States? Isn't it supposed to keep us safe? My favorite quote from this Guardian article on this issue was, Though metadata collection and analysis had apparently failed to identify Farouk, the shooter in San Bernardino, who's born in the United States and his wife, Tashfin Malik, is security risk, the program should be redoubled, Rubio said. I just want to note that every time something tragic happens, either in the United States or abroad, that is a perfect opportunity for politicians to exploit the tragedy for their own political gain or to trample on our rights. And that's exactly what happens after a terrorist attack. Terrorist attack happens, the media fear mongers about it, politicians fear monger about it, and Americans buy into that fear and immediately give away their rights. Like, yes, yes, spy on me, please, please. Big Brother's watching. Who cares? They're keeping us safe. They're keeping us safe. They're not keeping you safe. If you're an innocent American, you shouldn't have to worry about the, the government looking into the kind of porn you're watching. It's none of their business, right? Look, and another problem is, even if you are an innocent American who's done nothing wrong and you're like, whatever, have at it, look through all my emails, listen to all my phone calls, check out the porn I'm watching. It's an issue because it intimidates people from being politically active, right? If you know the government has any dirt on you, maybe you're having an affair, maybe you are watching some questionable porn, whatever it is, you're not going to want to stir the pot. You don't know whether or not that information is going to be used against you if you're holding politicians accountable. It's just, it's a terrible idea, and I don't want Americans to buy into the fear-mongering, although it seems like they already have. Rubio also said, that's exactly why the metadata program is so critical. People wind up on your radar who perhaps wouldn't have been on your radar. Wait a minute, that's why it might be a bad idea. Right? They, maybe they shouldn't be on your radar. We want to catch people who should be on our radar. I hate seeing tragic events being exploited uh, so Americans give up their rights. And that's what's been happening since 9-11. It continues to happen, and we're just willingly allowing politicians to do this because they're supposed to keep us safe. They're obviously not keeping us safe. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I would like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and get everything you can get used from a place like Craigslist. You will save yourself a boatload of money and reduce the endless flow of new stuff getting shipped across the world because that seems more convenient than meeting a neighbor. Failing that, try a locally owned small business.
Failing that, if you're left with no choice other than to buy something from a place like Amazon, then at least there's a way you can do it and support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com and shop as you normally would. Better yet, click through on the link to your country's Amazon store only once and then bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumption altogether, consuming sustainably, or at least consuming in a subversive way. This case is not even just really about phones. Obviously, the U.S. government, for ever since Apple announced its um, new encryption system, the software that automatically encrypts every iPhone as long as it's got a password attached to it, the government's been publicly freaking out, ramping up its um, rhetorical war, really, against encryption services and saying they're going dark. We heard it after Paris. You know, we're going dark. We can't access this information. Well, as Michael Hayden, the former director of the CIA and the NSA, told Bill Maher on TV the other night, you know, the encryption debate is sort of beside the point because really what the government uses to identify people it thinks might be dangerous in in the terrorism context is metadata, that is, information about who communicates with who and when. The encryption stuff, Michael Hayden said, is really more of a forensics issue. It's more of a, after a terrorist attack, it may become harder to go back and look at what those people said to each other. But it's not really going to mean that law enforcement won't be able to stop terrorism in the future. I think it's also important for people to realize that. But the precedent here is what's really, really key and what most media coverage of this uh, war, really, between FBI and Apple has failed to, to make clear for the, for the American public. And I have to say, Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, has been doing a pretty good job. When he says publicly, what the FBI is demanding of us is unprecedented. It is not simply that they are compelling speech out of my corporation. They are forcing us to write new code that would break into our own encryption system for the government. Not just that, they're asking us to sign that malicious code as if it is a regular update, software update from Apple. And this is the most dangerous thing in this case. Because if before, the FBI... Before we talk about signing, I just want to like take a step back and ask you about the first thing you mentioned, which is forcing them to write code. Right. Um, I think that... A lot of people have this misconception that it's really easy to crack into a single iPhone. And we've seen people like Piers Morgan, the former talking head on CNN, say, oh, I could just go to this, you know, street and ask some people in a little shop and pay them a hundred bucks and they could crack into this phone. So, like, what's wrong with that idea? Why is that false? Well, first of all, Piers Morgan has no fucking idea what he's talking about. He's a buffoon. I mean, he literally, like, has no idea what he's saying when he says that. The dude has probably doesn't even know how to use computers, let alone, <laughs> like, write code. Yeah, he's, so, he's, he's just generally <laughs> awful. Uh, if you don't yeah. know who he is, please don't find out. He has said a number <laughs> of bad things about all kinds of topics, so this is not the first. Yeah, he's a total moron, but what he's saying... <laughs> yeah, I other think people are saying that, right? Yeah, like, people no, are like, right. oh, it's so easy, why don't you just crack it? Why is exactly. it... Why is it hard. Right. Okay. So two things. One, it's not easy. And Apple has worked very, very hard to create software 
on its iPhone and hardware, frankly, that work together to prevent any malicious attackers from getting inside the phone. Now, I've seen some some quotes from current and former FBI and NSA officials. There was a story in the Daily Beast as soon as this um, war exploded in the press. Somebody wrote a piece in Daily Beast quoting um, former NSA officials who said, look, we can break into iPhones, okay? We can do it. So the question is not, can this be done um, mathematically? The question is, can the government force Apple to work as a spy on behalf of the U.S. government by doing that work for the U.S. government? The issue really is that that kind of um, digital espionage is very expensive. It requires a lot of manpower um, and a lot of energy. And the, the truth of the matter is that the FBI does not want to have to deal with that every time it wants to open one of these phones. And they want for local law enforcement to be able to get into iPhones. And they want to set the kind of precedent that I'm going to talk about in a minute. But the issue really is that for Apple, as a, as a private corporation, to be compelled to break its own security system that it has sold to its um, consumers as a central part of, you know, its... its um, it's a lore, really. The iPhone is outpa- outpacing Androids in no small part because of its security. Um, the government is forcing Apple to write new software, which, again, is not easy. It would take Apple, um, they describe in their brief, many, many engineers, a long process of you know, checking the code, going back if there are errors, making adjustments. You know, this is not a simple thing. It's not just like some nerd sits in the corner for 20 minutes and types some shit out and that's it. There's a very long, drawn-out process involving many, many different people inside Apple um, that would have to be involved to produce something like this. So, you know, in the first instance, it's not a simple thing to do. It definitely could be done. But what Piers Morgan fails to understand and what so many people have failed to understand is that the second you open this Pandora's box... The second you require Apple to do this, you're going to be setting a legal precedent that requires Apple to do this in every single criminal investigation where the FBI or local police or the DEA or the U.S. Marshals or anybody else wants access to someone's iPhone. And what that would mean is that Apple as a corporation would be required to maintain two different development stacks. One, which is their secure system which on its own, all by itself, requires huge manpower, you know, woman power too, um, in terms of maintaining the code and maintaining it securely. There are all sorts of bug fixes happening all the time. Um, That's why when you get an update, an automatic update alert from Apple saying you need to install this update on your iPhone, you need to install that. And the reason you do is because engineers have identified weaknesses in their system that they are patching through that code. So it's an ongoing process to just keep the phone secure, um, independent of the FBI's meddling here. Apple is very good at it, but they make mistakes too. So they would have to maintain that entire business operation of keeping their code secure and making it even secure, and then simultaneously maintain stacks of code that are insecure and intended deliberately to subvert its own security system. So that would mean that Apple would be put, you know would be conscripted, rather, into government service, where, whereas the NSA could just do this by themselves. The FBI is simply refusing to do that, to go that route in this case, because it thinks that it has a wedge with this terrorism case that it can open the door just a little bit, and once it's open that far, 
you know, a whole shitload of new criminal cases are going to start flowing through it and it'll blow right, right open. I think there was a helpful analogy by Congressman Ted Lieu of California and he tweeted a a bit ago, can FBI force a paper shredder company to alter its product to make thicker shreds so the FBI can recreate shredded docs? Although the analogy isn't perfect, right? Because the FBI is trying to make Apple recreate the shredded documents. Um, That's right. And I think. The other thing that I that I found interesting when I was reading about this, like I read the EFF's technical perspective on the case, just in terms of like the labor involved, like FBI is requesting a bunch of things, right? On certain phones, you can, well, on a lot of these phones, you can set it such that if you have 10 incorrect password entries in a row, it deletes all the data. So they right. want Apple to change, you know, write some malware to put on this phone to make it such that if, you know, he had that set up, it will not happen. It will not erase the data if they have 10 incorrect password guesses. They also have long delays in between entering different passwords, and they get increasingly longer if you get more and more incorrect. The FBI wants software written by Apple that accepts an arbitrary number of guesses with no delays. And then the third thing EFF pointed out is that iOS doesn't let you, like, plug it into a computer, write a bunch of scripts, and then load it onto your phone so that they can try, you know, millions and millions and millions of combinations of passwords in a really short amount of time. And of course, the FBI wants Apple to write code to make that happen because right now you actually have to physically type it uh, when you're trying password combinations for good reason, right? For security purposes, to try to keep out actual malicious hackers. So the FBI is basically saying, hey, Apple, we want you to be a malicious hacker hacking your own device. And then I want to ask you about this signing piece, and we want you to do what's called digitally sign it so it looks like it comes from Apple. Um, Now, my understanding of this is as someone who used to tinker around with iOS software development. Um, and in order to get something actually put on the phone, it needs to be digitally signed by Apple so the phone knows this is a thing coming from Apple. I can trust it. And they have guarded that technology that does that like it's crown jewels. So why is that? Why is that technology so important to them? Mm-hmm. And why is it so dangerous that the FBI wants them to basically write this code to crack the phone with their signature on it, putting their seal of approval on it? So to, to make this as simple as possible, I think the word Microsoft update is the, the best example because people are really familiar with it. If you're on your computer and you're working on a Word document, all of a sudden you get a pop-up that says Microsoft Word auto update, click here to accept. You click there, or you should at least, click to accept the software update because Microsoft is likely pushing you a security patch. They have likely identified the corporation Um, Its own technical people have likely identified some sort of bug in its uh, software that potentially exposes your computer to hacks or um, is in some way insecure. Or maybe they just frankly want the program to work slightly better and they've identified a couple of ways that they can tweak Microsoft Word to make it more functional, you know, have fewer crashes, things like that. You accept the software update. This is a core part of the way that digital trust works. Now, if Apple loses to the government here, it will have the impact of allowing the U.S. government not only to conscript conscript technology companies to write their own malicious software packages, which, by the way, the FBI does independently, as, as does the NSA, not only will the FBI be able, and local police, again, be able to force tech companies to write malicious code to fuck up their own technologies that their own users are using, 
but they will enable it will enable the government to force those companies to sign those updates as if they came from Microsoft or Apple or whoever independently to make the person on the other end the target of the surveillance trust the update and therefore that person will install the update and the malware will be delivered to the computer that is what is happening in this case too it's just that the guy's dead and the government is saying well the only way we can get into the phone is if apple writes this code signs it um as if it's coming from apple because apple's security systems are so good that you can only install updates if the if the phone is open in other words if you've actually entered your password and you're using the phone and if the app update as you said comes signed with apple's encryption keys proving yes i am apple i am the corporation you can trust this software update and the impact that this would have would be absolutely earth-shattering it's actually difficult to overstate how significant this could be because if people don't trust the automatic updates that they get from software providers like apple like microsoft like google that runs android phones they will never install updates and if you cannot trust that the updates that are coming from these corporations are valid and are not going to subvert your machine and give access to the government or to someone else to a malicious hacker or a foreign government or an industrial spy you're not going to install the updates and if you don't do that then your system is going to become insecure to anybody who wants to access it because if we don't have reliable bug patches being installed on our machines then the whole system of digital trust and therefore digital security collapses and it's really not an overstatement to say that that's the impact that this um ruling could have if it re- reaches the supreme court and the supreme court sides with with the FBI in this case You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, don't let California lawmakers undermine smartphone security. As we've been hearing, the FBI with the backing of the Obama administration is going after Apple directly to force the company to create a backdoor entry to access encrypted data on smartphones. What you may not have heard is that state officials on both coasts have begun introducing proposals to ban unbreakable encryption altogether at the state level. California Assembly Bill 1681 introduced in January by Assembly Member Jim Cooper would require any smartphone sold in the state to quote be capable of being decrypted and unlocked by its manufacturer or its operating system provider unquote any manufacturer or operating system provider who knowingly did not comply would then be subject to a civil penalty of $2500 for each smartphone sold or leased This proposal might be even more drastic than the legal precedent at stake in Apple's battle with the Justice Department. Not only is it unconstitutional due to its burden on interstate commerce, but as EFF puts it, quote, "by impacting every smartphone user in the state, this bill would affect tens of millions of people who have done nothing wrong. If passed, it would leave Californians at risk for identity theft, data breach, stalking, and other invasions of privacy with little benefit to law enforcement. It would be both ineffective and impossible to enforce unquote 
Unfortunately, the idea is still gaining steam. Similar proposals have already been made by a district attorney in Manhattan, and a nearly identical bill is pending in the New York State Assembly. Help fight for the privacy and safety of Californians so that your state isn't next. Sign EFF's petition to stop California lawmakers from undermining smartphone security for millions at act.eff.org slash action. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If privacy and safety are important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about EFF's petition to California via social media so that others in your network can get involved too. Can you stand up and be counting? There's a body in a crowd. Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed, weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now? Because that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change. In 2008, Burhan Hassan, aged 17, boarded a flight from Minneapolis to the Horn of Africa. And while Burhan was the youngest recruit, he was not alone. Al-Shabaab managed to recruit over two dozen young men in their late teens and early 20s with a heavy presence on social media platforms like Facebook. With the internet and other technologies, they've changed our everyday lives, but they've also changed recruitment, radicalization, and the front lines of conflict today. What about the links connecting Twitter, Google, and protesters fighting for democracy? These numbers represent Google's public DNS servers, effectively the only digital border crossing protesters had and could use to communicate with each other, to reach the outside world, and to spread viral awareness of what was happening in their own country. Today, conflict is essentially borderless. If there are bounds to conflict today, they're bound by digital not physical geography. And under all this is a vacuum of power where non-state actors, individuals and private organizations have the advantage over slow, outdated military and intelligence agencies. And this is because in the digital age of conflict, there exists a feedback loop where new technologies, platforms like the ones I mentioned and more disruptive ones can be adapted, learned and deployed by individuals and organizations faster than governments can react. To understand the pace of our own government thinking on this, I like to turn to something aptly named the Worldwide Threat Assessment, where every year the Director of National Intelligence in the U.S. looks at the global threat landscape. And he says, these are the threats, these are the details, and this is how we rank them. In 2007, there was absolutely no mention of cybersecurity. It took until 2011, when it came at the end, where other things like West African drug trafficking took precedent. In 2012, it crept up, still behind things like terrorism and proliferation. In 2013, it became the top threat. In 2014, and for the foreseeable future. What things like that show us is that there is a fundamental inability today on the part of governments to adapt and learn in digital conflict, where conflict can be immaterial, borderless, often wholly untraceable. 
And conflict isn't just online to offline, as we see with terrorist radicalization, but it goes the other way as well. We all know the horrible events that unfolded in Paris this year with the Charlie Hebdo terrorist attacks. What an individual hacker or a small group of anonymous individuals did was enter those social media conversations that so many of us took part in. Hashtag Je suis Charlie. On Facebook, on Twitter, on Google, all sorts of places where millions of people, myself included, were talking about the events and saw images like this, the emotional, poignant image of a baby with Je suis Charlie on its wrist. And this turned into a weapon. What the hackers did was weaponize this image where unsuspecting victims, like all of us in those conversations, saw this image, downloaded it, but it was embedded with malware. And so when you downloaded this image, it hacked your system. It took six days to deploy a global malware campaign. The divide between physical and digital domains today ceases to exist, where we have offline attacks like those in Paris appropriated for online hacks. And it goes the other way as well with recruitment. We see online radicalization of teens who can then be deployed globally for offline terrorist attacks. With all of this, we see that there's a new 21st century battle brewing, and governments don't necessarily take a part. So, in another case, Anonymous versus Losetas. In early September 2011, in Mexico, Losetas, one of the most powerful drug cartels, hung two bloggers with a sign that said, this is what will happen to all internet busybodies. A week later, they beheaded a young girl. They severed her head, put it on top of her computer with a similar note. And taking the digital counter-offensive, because governments couldn't even understand what was going on or act, Anonymous, a group we might not associate as the most positive force in the world, took action. Not in cyber attacks, but threatening information to be free. On social media, they said, we will release information that ties prosecutors and governors to corrupt drug deals with the cartel. And escalating that conflict, Losetta said, we will kill 10 people for every bit of information you release. And so it ended there because it would become too gruesome to continue. But what was powerful about this was that anonymous individuals, not federal policia, not military, not politicians, could strike fear deep into the heart of one of the most powerful, violent organizations in the world. And so we live in an era that lacks the clarity of the past in conflict, in who we're fighting, in the motivations behind attacks, in the tools and techniques used, and how quickly they evolve. And the question still remains, what can individuals, organizations, and governments do? For answers to these questions, it starts with individuals, and I think peer-to-peer -peer security is the answer. Those people in relationships that bought over teens online, we can do that with peer-to-peer -peer security. Individuals have more power than ever before to affect national and international security. And when we can create those positive peer-to-peer -peer relationships on and offline, we can support and educate the next generation of hackers like myself, instead of saying, you can either be a criminal or join the NSA. That matters today. And it's not just individuals, it's organizations. 
corporations even, they have an advantage to act across more borders more effectively and more rapidly than governments can. And there's a set of real incentives there. It's profitable and valuable to be seen as trustworthy in the digital age and will only be more so in future generations to come. But we still can't ignore governments because that's who we've turned to for collective action to keep us safe and secure. But we see where that's gotten us so far, where there's an inability to adapt and learn in digital conflict, where at the highest levels of leadership, director of the CIA, secretary of defense, they say cyber Pearl Harbor will happen. Cyber 9-11 is imminent. But this only makes us more fearful, not more secure. By banning encryption in favor of mass surveillance and mass hacking, sure, GCHQ and the NSA can spy on you, but that doesn't mean that they're the only ones that can. Capabilities are cheap, even free. Technical ability is rising around the world. And individuals and small groups have the advantage. So today it might just be the NSA and GCHQ, but who's to say that the Chinese can't find that back door? Or another generation, some kid in his basement in Estonia. And so I would say that it's not what governments can do, it's that they can't. Governments today need to give up power and control in order to help make us more secure. Giving up mass surveillance and hacking and instead fixing those back doors means that, yeah, they can't spy on us, but neither can the Chinese or that hacker in Estonia a generation from now. And government support for technologies like Tor and Bitcoin mean giving up control, but it means that developers, translators, anybody with an internet connection in countries like Cuba, Iran, and China can sell their skills, their products in the global marketplace, but more importantly, sell their ideas, show us what's happening in their own countries. And so it should be not fearful, it should be inspiring to the same governments that fought for civil rights, free speech, and democracy in the great wars of the last century, that today, for the first time in human history, we have a technical opportunity to make billions of people safer around the world that we've never had before in human history. It should be inspiring. We just heard clips featuring Decode DC comparing the arguments about the possible benefits to police work of decrypting a phone versus the systemic benefits to all from unbreakable encryption. Democracy Now! spoke with former CIA agent Barry Eisler about the showdown between Apple and the U.S. government. Humorless Queers in a two-part piece broke down many angles of the Apple story that are rarely heard elsewhere. The Young Turks lamented the inclinations of politicians to use scare tactics to promote government spying and the public's inclination to be frightened in submission. Our activism for today is from the Electronic Frontier Foundation fighting against state-level legislation attempting to ban unbreakable encryption. And finally, we just heard a TED Talk from Rodrigo Bijou about a completely new paradigm that governments of free and open societies should be looking through at issues of technology and security. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey, James Wade. I was um, driving around with my son a couple months ago, 
and he mentioned to me that he wanted to join the Marine Corps when he grew up. He's uh, he's 11. And he, of course, I you know, patronized him a little bit. You know how parents do. But that, it got me thinking to myself, there may not be a Marine Corps, or at least what we know it as, in eight years, due to automation, due to the fact that we don't really need soldiers and Marines to go kill people anymore. I know that's kind of stark, but so that's a fact. And you bring that to my current job. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a truck driver. I drive chemicals all over the country and, and Canada. And they're, they're talking about automated vehicles. Well, I make a, a, a very, very good living doing what I do. And I've, I've had this argument at, at truck stops with, with guys. They say, well, the, even if they even if they have a self driving truck, they'll still they'll still have to have us you know there you know like like pilots are. And uh, my my response to that is always the same. Yeah, that may be true, but why in God's name would they pay us six figures then? They won't. It'll be basically a minimum wage job. It'll be useless. And and we're at a point now where automation is is killing far more jobs than it is creating. Why would the factory spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on a machine if it's not going to save them any fucking money in the long term? And how are they going to save that money by not having to have workers? So the idea of, of a universal wage, I, I can't think of another answer. You know, I'm not saying I want it. I, I wish it wasn't necessary. But I don't see a way in which uh, you're going to be able to maintain societal happiness without it. I believe in hard work. I believe in personal responsibility. I believe in, in all of that. In my, I believe it in, in my heart. But if there's not any jobs and not any opportunities for people, where the hell are you going to put your hard work? Nothing that's going to pay anyway. So think about that. And I want to go back to the, to the, to the military briefly. When I was in, I was in the original invasion, 2003. 2003, we basically did it all. In my entire military career, I've never seen a drone. I've never seen a drone strike, ever. I've never seen the aftermath of one at any time that I ever see them. They were there. There just weren't that many of them. Now they're all over the place. You know, we use robots to, uh, to detonate IEDs. We did that by hand. Well, we didn't detonate them by hand. You know, we defused them. Nowadays, that's all done by robots. Eventually, you're not going to need men in the military. You're not going to need anything in the military other than some basic people, and the rest will be done by automation. I mean, any any fool can tell you that's where it's going. So a, a universal wage, it's got to be the wave of the future, unless anybody else has got a better idea, because I certainly don't. Even if the United States doesn't, even if they pass laws that, that, that restrict automation, which they won't, but even if they did, the rest of the world will do it. Because there's an economic advantage in there. And so, of course, they're going to do it. And then we still have to compete with the rest of the world. There's, I don't see a way out of it. Technology's not going to stop. Not even sure I really want it to stop. It doesn't matter. They're going to keep building stuff, keep inventing things. And these things are going to keep taking money away from actual people. You think about that. When even trucking and the military aren't options for people because both organizations, or both industries, I should say, they take all comers. Man, I, I don't know what else you got left to lose. That, that's that's going to be pretty tough. 
Anyway, Jay, it's just my thoughts on it. Have a good one. Hey, Jay, this is Alan from Connecticut, running behind but calling in regarding your message to Rambo and gentrification um, and what can we do about luxury uh, buildings being built. And there's an easy solution to that, um, in my opinion, and that is to mandate that, hey, build all the luxury buildings and condominiums and cluster housing you want. Just mandate that a certain percentage of that that is percentage is related to what the percentage is in that town or that community is got to be for low-income housing. So if they're building 100 units and 10% of the population is um, is low-income, then 10% of those luxury homes have to be uh, low-income, uh, affordable, subsidized as well, um, kept with that same median and, uh, and pricing. And by doing that, then you've allowed for people to live together in a way that's affordable for everyone. So that's my two cents. Stay awesome. Have a great day. Hi, Jason Corvallis. Getting through a couple of old podcasts, and uh, there are a lot of calls that were in response to Wade's comments or his question about in- income inequality and Chris's comment about financial, uh, say, financial intelligence. I forget what the comment, what it exactly was. Uh, people, people called in sounding very offended. And I guess my thought or response to that is kind of along the lines of what you said, of taking a minute to listen to what the person actually said, but then going the next step. Even if you listen to them and they had targeted groups that you belong to or you affiliate yourself with, whether it was out of ignorance or out of spite or malice or whatever, and you found yourself to be offended by what they said, get over yourself. What does you getting offended, what does that What does that help? It doesn't help anything. If you respond in anger or you respond out of that frustration, you're not going to win over the other person if you're, if you're going to go on the attack, on the offensive. So, oh, I'm offended. I'm going to do these reasons, blah, blah, blah. That's not conducive to conversation. That's not conducive to uh, any kind of discussion. So I, I don't know. It's it's not always easy to take a step back and not be offended. And it's fun to get riled up. I totally enjoy getting riled up and offended at the smallest things. But I try to, at least when I do that, keep in mind that it's just me and I've got my panties in a bunch or my knickers or whatever are in a bunch. And that's that's my issue. If I'm choosing to be offended, that, that's me. They, they can't make me offended. Only I can choose to be offended. So I try to take a couple deep breaths and, and see how to constructively confront it. Because just, I have, you don't have a right to not be offended. I can be offended at anything. And that's, so what? I'm not a pretty little snowflake. I've got to get over it and just move on with my life. And if I don't like what someone has to say about something, try to respond in a calm manner and actually have a discussion as opposed to just getting defensive and offended.
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who help gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, that last message that I played, I, I, I put it on there specifically so that I could respond to it because this is one of my new favorite topics to address really because I, I had this issue clarified for me within the last six or eight months or so. And and I think it's something that's really important that should be repeated with great frequency because it comes up a lot and is very, very misunderstood. So Trey's voicemail, you know, his basic point is, you know, if you're offended by something, that's not really changing the calculus. And if you allow your offense to, you know, really change how you react or, you know, if you're just responding out of anger, that may actually hurt you when you're trying to make an argument, you're trying to convince someone of something. And so, you know, being offended is not productive or useful. I think that's, that's my takeaway from his message. And I think that his message is not technically wrong. I, you know, I wouldn't have said it the way he said it, but it's not technically wrong. But what it is, is missing a gigantic part of the puzzle. And so, you know, we just did this episode on digital privacy. To me, Trey's voicemail, it's like, if we go back to the very first segment I played, it's like if we only had the story of the woman who was killed and whose phone was locked, and there was the theory that maybe there were clues to her murderer on her phone, if you were to just ask the question, should investigators have access to that phone in search of clues to the woman's murderer. You're like, well, yeah, obviously. Where's the question? But as we heard, there's a lot more to it than that. So Trey's voicemail, it's kind of like that. He's like, look, being offended doesn't really help anything. Uh, yeah, okay. But it turns out there's more to it than that. So what was clarified for me recently is that there is a deep, deep connection, but there's a giant difference between being offended and being harmed or recognizing that other people may be harmed. So in the examples that Trey was working off of, Wade, conservative caller, calls into the show often. He was being misunderstood about income inequality. Someone called in saying, you know, implying that Wade was in favor of gigantic, unhealthy income inequality. And that person seemed offended at the, at the very thought that Wade would have that opinion. Uh, that was mistaken, but that person was offended. Okay, fine. Uh, and then the other example was, I believe it was Chris, who was misunderstood about poverty shaming, and people were offended that Chris would say those things and that I would play it on the show, and that it's you know it's a terrible thing to say that people who are in poverty are stupid or they just need to get some financial education and then they wouldn't be poor anymore, and so on and so on. So pe- people were calling in sounding very offended about those things. But here's the part that's missing. If Wade and Chris had actually said those things that Trey's referring to and that people seemed offended by, that would actually be harmful in addition to being offensive. So I would agree that, hey, like if you're offended, doesn't really change the calculation of reality. But what does change the calculation of reality is the actual real-world harm that is done to actual people through systemic means 
when people say offensive things, <laughs> for people to say that income inequality isn't bad, for instance, that adds to a sort of societal narrative about how income inequality is okay. And if that paradigm of a mindset is solidified and bubbles to the top, that gets turned into legislation that perpetuates income inequality, actually harming actual people at the bottom of the income spectrum. And about poverty shaming, pretty much the same thing. If we as a society have conversations and, and solidify a paradigm of thought in which we say that poor people are poor because of their own fault, that trickles up eventually and becomes legislation that makes us as a society decide we don't want to help people in poverty because we've decided collectively that you know they should help themselves and it's their own fault for being poor. So yeah, maybe you would take offense to the idea of income inequality being good or you, you would take offense to poverty shaming. And I would agree with Trey that you taking offense doesn't really do much. It doesn't change the calculation. But the reason you're taking offense to it is because at a, at a deep level, whether it be conscious or unconscious, what you are recognizing, what you are responding to, is the fact that that line of thought, that that uh, you know, speaking in that way and perpetuating that paradigm of thought, has real world consequences. So what happens all too often is that people like Trey or comedians who want to tell rape jokes or whatever the case may be rail against political correctness or the offend you know the offense culture everyone being offended they want to emphasize over and over again that no one has the right to not be offended and that's true but they're missing the fundamental element of this conversation that what people say and do what ideas we perpetuate have real world consequences and actually harm real people, which is a hell of a lot different than just offending someone. So in a sense, I was sort of glad to hear Trey's voicemail, even though it was you know, a little little on the frustrating side to, to listen to because he was missing the point so so badly. But what he did was he teed it up for me real nicely so I could take a, a good firm uh, swing at it. Secondly, today, we are trying something new on Facebook, and I, I would love for you to go like our page on Facebook and specifically uh, set your little uh, you know, Facebook setting there to have best of the left be what you see first. That, that's the setting. You see it first. And the reason that I am so bold as to ask you to do that is not because, oh, like our content is so amazing that you, you need to see it first. No, it's the, the fundamental point of this show is to promote other people's great content, to spread the word, to amplify it. And so the, the entire point of our social media networks and pretty much everything we do is to get this content out there to the highest number of people possible. So primarily that's you, someone listening to the show, but you can help us by spreading the word through spreading individual clips or you know, whatever variety of ways uh, you want to go about that. And so we've been doing that for years, having individual clips available to share through the website. But the new thing we're doing is we're just trying to push more of that content directly out to our social media networks. So 
if you are uh, you know subscribed to our feeds and set it so that you are sure to see what we post it's not necessarily so that we can promote ourselves that much better it's so that you can be an integral part of helping push out the content that's already in the show so i'm not even saying you need to like our page because you are going to love the content we put out there. You already love the content we put out there, and you probably already heard it on the show. The point is for you to see that stuff so that you can very quickly and easily like it, share it, retweet it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we're just getting into the swing of this, but you know, posting lots of uh, content from the show itself onto our social networks. So I would love any you know feedback if you sign up and if you tell Facebook to see it first. And if things start coming through and you're able to share them, I would love to know that that's working or if there's anything we can do to make that whole process better. And yeah, and I think we're just going to keep going and sort of tinker with it until we've got a system that works. And, and, you know, this show in conjunction with you can help promote all of this great stuff even better and, you know, with more force than we have before. Now that's going to be it for today. Everyone, please keep the comments coming in. The number again, 202-999-3991. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us on our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all the great content we put out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can't see past Stories and wonder why we're missing. We can't see past our sad stories and forget how to listen. We can't see past our sad stories and.